Welcome to Forged in the Fires podcast with Fireman Rob. Being a fireman, father, veteran, husband, world record holder, and Ironman, he brings stories of experience to impact your life while challenging you to live it. What do you want from your life? Why do you want it? Are you willing to go through the challenges to get there? If you have the courage to take that first step, let this podcast be the catalyst to start your fire while you bring the resilience to make it continue to burn. Our lives are made up of moments called right nows. So let's get started. Forged in the Fires podcast with your host, Fireman Rob, begins now. We got the same love, the same love. Stay by your side, it's right or All right, welcome back to Forged in the Fires podcast. I'm your host, Rob Verhels, better known as Fireman Rob. Now, the guest I have today is one of those guys that you are lucky to be able to hear and be able to have on a podcast, a six-time Ironman world champion. He is a USAT, Ironman, ITU Hall of Fame. I could go on and on. I've got about a page and a half of accolades. Mark Allen, it is so great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a challenging time right now, but, you know, definitely is having you as a coach. A lot of people, MarkAllenCoaching.com, a lot of people are probably looking to you for advice and how to weather the storm of not being able to compete, but at the same time, keep their fitness level up. What are you telling these athletes of yours? Yeah, that's actually a great question. Um, and it's been interesting seeing how my coaching has evolved actually in the last few months. I thought more people would drop off than have because clearly if you're getting coached, it's because you want to get better and ultimately I think have a great performance in races. But people have shifted that focus away from thinking, okay, I'm doing this because I want to set a PR, qualify for a championship or whatever it is to having their exercise be something that is just an inherent day-to-day reward for having at least something that they can have a, some semblance of control over and also something that actually feels good, that's good for their health. It helps reduce stress. It gives them a break from having to, you know, mull over the situation with their job or somebody who did get sick or, you know, just when is this going to end or when do we get back to normal? You know, so people have shifted the reason why they are training. And I've tried to emphasize this to all the people that I coach. Have it be that you put in a consistent training regimen into your day. It's not negotiable unless something, obviously, life does get in the way a lot of times. But it's not negotiable in the sense of, gee, should I do it or should I not? Train because it's essential to your physical health. It's essential to your well-being. It's essential to helping reduce your stress. And you'll just feel good and feel like, okay, if nothing else, I got in that 45-minute run or I got in that that hour riding my stationary bike or I did my swim stretch cords and I stretched and I did a little bit of core work or whatever it is, you know. And so anyway, the coaching, my coaching has really helped sort of be an accountability tool for them. You know, they have a calendar with training, work, their workouts on it. So it it's sort of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And 
at some point those races will come back and those who are yes, <laughs> those who are laying the groundwork now and and maintaining a decent base of fitness without doing too much they're going to shine once races start to pop back onto the calendar and especially having your background cuz you know you go back to 1982 when you began getting into endurance sports and you look at something like now where it's the unknowns. It's the not knowing what's going to happen next that is scaring most people. But back when you started, there was no books. There was no videos. There was no Google to be able to find out how to do things. <laughs> you just had to learn how to do it on the fly. Does that make you a better coach to be able to adapt to these kind of situations? Well, I think the the element of what I was doing in the early 80s that applies directly to what's going on now is that when I first got into the sport, I just did it because it felt like an adventure. It felt fun. I enjoyed seeing how I could become more proficient at swimming, cycling, and running and putting all those together for the races. And certainly the races were, they were an important element of why I trained, but ultimately the racing was just the excuse to be able to get out there and train. And I, I love the process of training. And so I think right. I've been able to sort of instill that emphasis in people's minds a little more now. And I think actually what's going to happen is those who are training now, they're going to have a different relationship with with fitness and why they're doing it than those who have kind of given up because there's no races. You know, people who are training now, they're they're in it for their lifetime now. You know, they're seeing that they do feel better. They It keeps their morale up. It has required them to adapt. You know, nobody has pools. So what do you do? Well, you get a pair of Stretch cord right. and you do some, <laughs> you know, attach the thing to your doorknob and you, you go, you go at it and you just find different ways to adapt to the situation as it is. You know, you might have a, a lot of people had like those three or four days in the beginning where it's like, oh my gosh, what's, what's the purpose now? <laughs> you know, why am I doing yeah. this? And so a lot of people cut back on some of the volume that they were doing. You know, if you're, if your Ironman got postponed or canceled, you probably don't want to go out there and do five or six hour rides every Saturday or whatever, <laughs> but you cut it back to right. something that still maintains your fitness and, and gives you that good feeling about life. And so anyway, that's what I got from the eighties, early eighties. I got into the sport just because I, I love to train. I love to get out there and swim and bike and run and get out there in the world and see what's going on. And even though a lot of what people are doing now has been inside on, on trainers, let's say, especially cycling. They're just seeing that there's that inherent goodness they get out of exercise and staying healthy. And I, I mean, I love it because uh, when I was reading an article about you, you said you didn't classify yourself as that classic competitor, but, you know, sport was really to evolve yourself. And you, that's exactly what you're talking about. There is a lot of people right now are choosing that new healthy path for the simple fact is that it's actually making sense. And even though they don't have a race, they're fine with that. Mm -hmm. Is that... Are you seeing more people just, you know, changing that that lifestyle and and still having that camaraderie of the endurance sports? Are you seeing those two, like the symbiotic relationship between those two, actually helping them to continue to advance? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, without that sort of real competitive element being at the forefront of what they're doing every day, they're actually sort of relaxing a little, little bit, like. Well, I didn't go so hard on that workout, but that's okay. I still got out there, you know, which is in some ways healthy. Right. And then other days they're like, you know what? Sorry, coach. I felt, I just felt so good. I just ignored my training zones and I just went for it, you know? So people are getting sort of that 
more organic methodology integrated into their into their structure. They go with more how their body's feeling. And the really interesting thing is that people now have taken the time to sort of work on some of the the elements that they know they're weak in. So like somebody might know that let's say their their cadence rate is too low when they run. They kind of plod. And so they've been spending time just focusing on gradually building that cadence rate up so that they're actually running with the cadence rate of really good runners. And they're uh, because they can focus on it. You know, they don't have all these other things going right. on. Like, oh geez, it's three weeks before the till the race and I've got to get my wheels together. And it's like <laughs> They're calmed down. It's the, it's the little things that matter in the long run. Yeah. So it, now, people are, yeah. yeah. Now going back to your career, because uh, I mean, you had a long career, I mean, 12 times in Kona and I loved it because, you know, one of your things, when I asked you what your favorite story is, I loved it because you said probably about losing Ironman six times, making some significant changes and coming back. And you won it six times, Ironman Kona. Tell me more about that transformation from not making that podium to all of a sudden making it numerous times. Yeah, the, you know, for those who don't know that history, of the first six years that I raced Hawaii, I had what on the surface might have looked like pretty good races. I finished fifth twice. I finished third. I finished second twice. The very first year, I was actually in the lead with Dave Scott on the bike, and my derailleur broke, and I had to drop out. but Thank God the derailleur broke because truth be known, I probably would have completely blown up on that marathon. So I could go home, I could go home <laughs> saying, dang, I was in the lead when my bike broke. <laughs> but um, You shouldn't have given that. Yeah. But, um, you know, those, those years were tough because there were a lot of those first six that I felt like I had what it took to win and I couldn't. I could be in the lead. At the end of the bike, I could be in the lead at the half marathon, even with a few miles to go in the marathon, but I was falling apart. So in 1989, it was the winter of 89, and I was kind of at that crossroads having that chat with myself. Am I going to go back for a seventh one of those friggin' things? You know, I mean, how many times do you beat your head against the wall before you realize <laughs> you don't have what it takes, buddy? You know, go do an Olympic <laughs> distance race where you know that you can go fast, you know? And so. <laughs> I wasn't going to go back. I thought, no, I, it's not for me. And then two weeks later, after I started my training, there was just like this, I could just feel the subtle pull of the big island, like, come back, come back. We need to come back another time. I'm like, dang, you know, I do. And, but I need to go, I need yep. to go there for a different reason. I had been going to the Ironman World Championship on the big island of Hawaii in Kona trying to be the first person to cross that line. And when I didn't, there was this huge disappointment and letdown because I felt like I had done what it had, w would take to be the champion of many of those years, and it just wasn't materializing. And so in 89, I kind of took my own step back and, and relaxed a little bit. And I thought, you know, the reason to go back there is for the same reason I got into the sport. And it's just to go to, go to the Ironman, try to cross that finish line, in the best fashion you can, just go there and have a great race. And don't even think about if you're going to win, not win, where you're at. Just put together an amazing swim, bike, and run and honor, you know, honor yourself with that effort and honor yourself with that focus. And that's why I, I went there in 89. And I also, I knew that I needed to have a different relationship with the island itself because it's a very, very intense 
natural environment. Yes. You know, you you get off that plane there and you know you are not in Kansas, you know. <laughs> this, this ain't Kansas, Toto. You know, it's this is um, this is a whole different beast. And I was trying to push away that intensity rather than finding a way to embrace it and see the beauty that was actually there, that is there. And so in 89, I, a couple of days before the race, I went to this place along the ocean on Lee Drive where the marathon course runs. And I just sat there and kind of had a talk with the island. And I said, you know, just let it be okay that I come here as me and that I can just, you know, that I can feel at home here and welcomed here. And I really felt like the island just opened up to me, you know, and it, I just really had this warm feeling instead of this intense fear feeling. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced that at the Ironman in Hawaii. And so the race evolved and, you know, there's, and, and I'm, I'll lead into a, a story that's wild and completely out of left field, but at the same time, the reality of what happened. Um, <laughs> Dave Scott, who had won the race six times prior to 1989, going into that race, he was the guy to beat. He and I were together the entire swim. I just shouted him the entire way. I thought, you know what? This guy knows how to do it. Just stay with him and see how he does it. You know, he knows how to pace this so that the last two hours are his best part of the race, not like mine, where the last two hours is where I fell apart. And so stuck with him on the swim, stayed right behind him on the bike. You know, if he surged, I surged. If he backed off, I backed off. And I thought, I like this. You know, <laughs> I, I got the best chauffeur in the yes. world here, you know. Best tour guide, Dave Scott, first time Ironman champ. <laughs> and so um, we hit the marathon and he started out just blistering fast. We were going somewhere around 545, 550 miles the first four or five wow. miles. And I thought, this is complete insanity. But I stuck to my plan. I just said, you know what? Just stick with him. If If you blow up, at least you go down with the best guy there is, right? And so finally when we right. – headed out onto the meat of the marathon course, which was about 20 miles out on the lava, lava fields, he sort of settled into more of a sane pace. And, and then it really became this waiting game. You know, both of us tried to kind of build the pace unsuccessfully to get rid of the other guy. And slowly it was becoming apparent that there was no surge or mental move that I could do that was going to break Dave Scott. He was going to be strong all the way to the end. And that was that was so intimidating because most guys at that point in my career, you know, if I put in a good surge and started to pull away a little bit, they'd give up. Right. Dave Scott was not going to give up. And so anyway, at a, with about, I don't know, somewhere around 12 miles to go, he started building his pace and then he'd back off and he'd build it and he'd back off. And he was finally, he settled into about a six minute mile and I was barely hanging on. And I thought, oh no, he's going to go this fast for the remaining 12, 13 miles of this marathon. And it completely blew my mind because nobody had run that fast ever in the history of the race. I certainly hadn't. And I certainly hadn't run that fast that late. And so then my mind just started going berserk with all the crap that doesn't help you out. You know, like, ah, oh, Dave Scott, he's going to win. My right. legs are killing me. I, I shouldn't have come back. I should have done different training. You know, wow, wow, wow. Poor me, right? I mean, my legs are killing me, but Right. What was I thinking was going to happen? You know, I was going to get to the Ironman and run the marathon and not feel it. Yeah. You know, it's like get real. I'm pushing a five yeah, minute like, paces. Yeah, yeah that's it's, and it's so gonna hurt. finally it got so hard to match his pace that I it took like literally every ounce of focus I had to just 
stay with them another step, another step, another step. And finally, that became my only focus. My mind went quiet. And literally in the instant my mind went quiet, an image came back to me that I'd seen in a magazine two days before the race. And it was a, a photo of a 110-year-old Weichel, uh shaman medicine man from Mexico and one of the one of the indigenous tribes down there. And in this photo of him and his grandson, his name was Don Jose and his grandson is Grant Secunda. And they were they were going to be teaching a workshop mm -hmm. in Mexico talking about the way of life from the Huichol people, which is they're very indigenous. They they value connecting with nature. They love they love to laugh and joke, but they also have a a deep sense of how important it is to to feel connected with like the natural world, which was, like I said, ironically something that I did for the first time there in, in Hawaii, those two days before the race, I felt like right. I connected with the island for the first time. And it felt so alive and so real. And so anyway, Don Jose's image came back to me. And in the photo, he had this just beautiful, peaceful, but powerful smile, you know, that just seemed like it reached across the universe. And, and you know, as an athlete, that's kind of the, the two qualities you're trying to blend together, a sense of peace, yet having a sense of power of strength, of being able to just keep sticking with it no matter what. And that can be very difficult when the guy next to you is running a six-minute mile and you're ready to quit, you know? And <laughs> so my mind goes, yeah, my Challenges mind goes it. quiet. Don Jose's image came back to me, and all of a sudden I felt like I was being flooded with that sense of peaceful power, I guess you'd call it. It's, it's hard to even find the words for it, but I just felt like there was this life force that was filling me up. and there was this switch. Like all of a sudden, my entire being relaxed and it just got a little bit easier to match day's pace. And then all of a sudden, you know, the chatter wasn't about how bad I felt. It was like, look at this. I'm giving, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with the best guy in the world. There's no shame in that. There's still, you know, over an hour, almost hour and 15 worth of racing. Something might change, you know, this is not a loss. This is amazing, you know? And I looked around and the island looked so beautiful, that raw, rugged lava that had looked like a hell for me for so many years. I looked at it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so incredible. I mean, this is in the middle of the world championship, right? I had this vision of a 110-year-old medicine man, retail shaman, and I'm looking around going, this island is so amazing. You'd think I'd gone nuts, you know? But these... Yeah. You were actually sightseeing yeah, with Dave Scott. <laughs> these are the kind of things that bring you back into a, a space where you just, you're fully engaged in what you're doing and you're not held back by worrying about how it's going to turn out or, or what, what the end of the day is going to look like. You're just there. You're present. You're giving everything you have. Everything starts to flow again. And we stayed side by side all the way until the final uphill, which was about a mile and a half from the finish line. And on that hill, I, I was able to start just pushing the pace a little bit faster than we had done before. And, and it caught Dave a little bit off guard. And right away, I, in like just a matter of a few steps, I put about five feet on him. And then it just, the gap started to grow. And you can see in the, in the TV footage that all of a sudden he realizes that I'm pulling away from him in his territory, those those last miles of the race, and his shoulders right. get tight, you know, as he starts to rock. And all of a sudden he's having to deal with a situation that he never had in his career ever. And I went on and I and I won the first of six races that year. 
Dave had and his then he best, went on to win a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave, you know, Dave had his best Ironman that year, but he broke his previous world's record by almost 18 minutes. And I, wow. I did my best time to that date by nearly 30. And the difference in our times at the end was very, very small, 58 seconds. And uh, it was it was incredible. You know, when I finally got within sight of the finish line and I realized Dave wasn't going to catch me. I wasn't going to cramp. I wasn't going to fall down. I was going to actually win it. You know, these, these tears of joy and relief and total ecstasy and fulfillment just filled me, you know, and pretty incredible. And then eventually a little bit after that race, I, I went down to that workshop in Mexico and Don Jose actually had died just the month before it, but I met Brant Secunda and started studying that, that beautiful tradition with him. And I've been studying with him since basically since 1990, then almost 30, basically 30 years now. And uh, wow. that became a real integrated part of my, I guess you'd say preparation, because it, it really helped me to the tools and practices and that he teaches and that, that we use. It helps you to sort of embrace a sense of peace, embrace, learn how to get your mind to be quiet, to just sort of surrender to life and, and and try and just be grateful no matter what's going on, no matter how it's looking, how impossible it is, just take that next step anyway. And that became such a huge part of my my racing. Because, you know, when you're in an Ironman, I don't care if you win it and you look like you had the whole thing under control, There were, there's still going to be about a thousand points where you're going, I can't do yes. this. What was I thinking? I, I'm getting a sit-down office job the second I cross that finish line. I, you know, I am never doing one of these things again, right? And you have to bring yourself back into that space of, okay, there's the quiet. Now, remember why you're here. You're here to just give your best effort. And your best effort's going to happen when you're quiet, when you engage, when you just get to that next aid station, when everything loosens up. So just shake it off and suck it up and here we go. Okay. And you have to keep coming back to those places over and over and over. And if you can do it in like a breath or one second, you're engaged more of the race than the other competitors who are sitting there fighting themselves, trying to decide, is this excuse good enough to drop out? Will it sound okay? You know? You say it perfectly because it's, it's really, uh, you talk about tuning into your body and dealing with things that don't show up on the garment. It's, those are the things that are the, the intangibles that I think are hard for individuals nowadays because they have so much information. Whereas you guys had to figure out your bodies. And I, I love the, what, what you talked about your mind, because when your mind is quiet and you're able to talk to yourself in a strong tone, that's when you can achieve greatness. I love that, how you put that because it's so important. And, you know, talking about you won that, that race and now you did you you won twenty or twenty one straight races? I got on a winning streak. <laughs> this is a great story, actually. I love this. <laughs> I got on a winning streak in nineteen eighty eight, about a month or so after Ironman in late November in nineteen eighty eight. That was after my sixth Ironman, the last one that I lost. I went to a place called Reunion Island to do a, a long distance event that was it was about a six hour race. Very very. In hilly demanding course. And I won it in Reunion Island. And from there, all the way through 1989 and all the way through 1990, I didn't lose one race. I won every race that I competed in at all distances, all places around the world. And that totaled up 
from that race in Union Island all the way till the last race that I won in, in 1990, totaled 20 races. And so for years, I was telling people that I won, I had this 20 race winning streak that started in late November 1990, uh, sorry, 1988, went all the way through the end of the season in 1990. Well, <laughs> about a year or so ago, I found this moving box that I had in my storage shed that had a bunch of my old trophies in it. And so I thought I'd go down memory lane and sort of started unwrapping them. And I, and I unwrapped this big Waterford crystal vase. And it was the championship trophy for winning this race, the Bermuda International Triathlon. Okay. And I looked at the date and it was, it was like November 6th, 1988. <laughs> so I had actually started my winning streak at the beginning of November that year. And so all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, the winning streak wasn't 20, it was 21. <laughs> and, so, and so I had to revise all of my printing and press stuff. And, you know, the winning streak is 21, not 20. I love it. And somebody goes, how can you not remember a race that you won? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> You're in a zone. Oh, <laughs> uh, my God. Just, yeah, don't come to me if you're looking for, like, the super stats on anything in sports, because I'll get it wrong for sure. <laughs> well, I love it, because it's like, you know, you race each race, and, you know, from that that streak and from all of your other accolades, you got the greatest endurance athlete of all time by ESPN, which is a huge accolade, because, you know, endurance sports is such a, a critical part of, of life, and a lot of people learn so many skills. I mean, myself, I've been able to cope with a lot of things and be able to learn a lot about myself. And one of my favorite stories of yours is that 1995 comeback when you were 37 years old and you had taken a year off. Run me through that last 23 months or that last when you got into the marathon because you were 13 minutes back on the run, right? This was my final Ironman 1995. This was 12th one. If I could win it, it would be six wins and six starts. And so, you know, that kind of sounded pretty cool because that would tie Dave Scott's record of winning six Ironmans. And I was 37 years old that year, and nobody had won as a 37-year-old. Nobody had won six races and six starts either. Dave won six, but he had a, he had a loss in there during one of, those, one of the years. But anyway, so going into it, I, I had two levels of kind of this impossibility facing me. And just like everything else back then, you couldn't Google how do you win Iron Man as a 37-year-old, you know, six in a row? I should, um, I'll Google I had it right to now. Uh. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, the problem was that the guys I was competing against were 10, 15 years younger. And so they, they were able to load on the volume much more than me. You know, I'd been able to do it in the early part of my career, but now I was at a point where my body just couldn't take that same training. I had to dial it back. And so, of course, the question is, where am I going to get more out of myself with less training? Right. And so, you know, that that was the year that for sure I, I did a ton of extra stuff with studying with Brant and working with him. And he helped me out a lot to get in the right space to just be able to really draw energy from the island, strength from the island, and also to just stay in that right mental space for eight hours, which is very hard to do. Right. If you don't train for it, yeah. you know, if you go to, if you go to the Ironman hoping you're going to be able to deal with yourself, forget <laughs> it, you know, you got to practice it. And so anyway, I, I came off the bike and things weren't looking too good. I came off the bike 13 and a half minutes behind the leader, Thomas Hellriegel. He was a 24 year old German soldier and nobody had come from that far back to win 
And so now there's the third level of impossibility facing me. I had to make up 30 seconds a mile Jeez. every single mile of the marathon if I was going to catch him at the finish line. And that seemed completely impossible. Like, how am I going to do that? Right. You know, and so I just kind of broke it down. And I the, the one commitment that I could wrap my brain around was to just try and make up an inch or a second every step. It's like, okay, I can, I can try to manage. I can do that. And, you know, I was clicking off time. I was, I was getting closer. I was getting closer. But with eight miles to go, I was told I was four minutes back, which in relative terms that's, meant that I still had to make up 30 seconds a mile. And I was going to catch him at the finish line. And that's not a good place no. <laughs> to catch a guy 13 years younger than you when you're sprinting for a world championship, right? Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I had done a lot of work with Brant. And right before I came over to Hawaii, he I stopped at where he lives, sort of in the Santa Cruz area. And I spent a day with him and he, he did a final kind of blessing for me. And he said, if you're having problems out there, call out to the big island. It's alive. It will hear you. It will help you, you know? And so I thought, okay. One more time. <laughs> <laughs> One more time. And I, and I, I said, Hey, big island, help me here. I need, I need something extra. I'm, I just need to make up a little bit more. I'll give, I'm given everything I have and I'm going to give everything I have, even if I blow up, but I need your help. And the next mile, I made up about 40 seconds. And then the one after that, about 50. And the mile after that, I made up a minute and 15 seconds on <laughs> Hell Regal, who had been leading for over six hours at this point. And then finally, at, right past the mile, the 23-mile marker, I came up behind him and I, I thought, okay, this is it. Just rest for a second and then go. And I did. And I passed him and just I didn't look back. I just kept the pedal to the metal. And slowly I could hear his footsteps fading. And then finally I couldn't hear his footsteps anymore. And I just, I kept the pace up all the way to the finish. Wow. And so anyway, that it was, it was very intense because there were, there were so many moments where I really literally did want to give up right? because it seemed so impossible. And it was funny because the next day at the awards, pretty much every single one of the guys in the top 10 came up to me and they go, man, how did you do that? This, you know, they all said, I would have given up. I would have thrown in the towel. I don't know. How did, did you think you could win? You know, <laughs> it's like, I had no idea. Right. I had absolutely no idea if I could, but I knew that this was my last Ironman. I knew that I wanted to go out knowing that I'd given my best effort. And so that kept bringing me back to that space of give your best effort, give your best effort. Don't worry about him, Hell Regal, the race, the victory, the, the loss, whatever, however it's going to turn out. Don't even think about that. Just make each step count. And so in the end, even though when I came off the bike, I thought I was having the worst Ironman of my life. Right. In the end, when I look back, I realized that was, that was the greatest race of my entire career because it took so much to overcome that part of myself that could have easily just said, I can't do it. It's not worth it. Given up, given a halfway effort, you know, and, and every time we rise above those moments, in our lives, whether it's at a race or in a relationship or at work or wherever you find yourself where you, you want to just give up and throw in the towel and you re-engage and you take something to completion, it's that's empowering. That empowers you for your life. And it's it's a memory that fuels you for a very, very, very long time. Oh. You know, Brant and I teach a workshop called Fit Soul Fit Body. We haven't recently because of the, you know, <laughs> situation with the virus. But in that workshop, we teach a lot. He, he teaches a lot of the tools that I use to become an Ironman champion. They're tools that everybody can use to 
become healthier, happier to overcome many of the challenges that might seem too daunting to be able to manage, you know, and to just re-engage with, with a much more peaceful yet powerful focus in life. And that's, that's precious to do that. Oh, it is so precious. You can go to fitsoul-fitbody.com to find out more, or you can go to markallencoaching.com to find out more. I mean, your philosophy, I love it because it's more than sport. It transcends into the soul, and I think that's that's where you find the true transformation. And uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. We've got questions, though. So here we go. First question is, what is one thing you haven't done but is outside of your comfort zone? Oh, well, <laughs> there's a lot of things I haven't done that are outside of my comfort zone. I haven't climbed Mount Everest. I haven't parachuted. I haven't, you know, there's that I haven't done river rafting in heavy water. There's a lot of things. And not that I want to do any of those, but um, <laughs> well, yeah, people next... sometimes think, oh, you did Iron Man, you can do anything. It's like, no, I can't. I'm just <laughs> as vulnerable and human as everybody else. I just happen to be kind of good at that one thing. Well, I think next time maybe you and I connect, we'll do an interview and we'll go skydiving. Okay. <laughs> uh, it'll be a Help great me. interview. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's a second. Here's a... You go first. You go first. Yeah. <laughs> Why did Mark not get out? <laughs> All right. Here's your second one. What is your favorite quote and why? One of my favorite quotes is, you don't have to be having fun to have fun. Oh, and oh, I, I really like that because that sort of summarizes a lot about the race experience. It's right. You can't say you're out there having fun. It's it's painful. It's intense, but it's fulfilling. And fulfillment is a form of fun. And then a second quote that I really like and that I really had to think about for a while is one that says, how you do anything is how you do everything. So hmm. like, you know. Do you leave your dishes in the sink all the time? Well, what other parts of your life do you leave undone thinking that, oh, I'll deal with it later? You know, and not that you have to be neurotic about anything or everything. But, you know, once I started thinking about that, it's like, yes, yeah, just as a simple thing. You know, you, you get up in the morning, you make your bed. You do some form of morning rituals to to set the tone for the day. And then everything in that day becomes a very different experience, more of a life becomes a practice that is enabling you to perfect yourself a little bit more each each and every day. And so that quote is really a, a broad one. And I think if people think about it and see how that does apply in their life, that it, it can transform things, you know. I love that quote. That's That's a great way of thinking of things. All right, here's your third one. If you could pick to have coffee with three other people, they can be living or deceased, at a firehouse table. So in other words, nothing is off the table. You can ask them anything. Mm -hmm. Who would it be and why? This one, we've gotten people all over the board. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Well, one one person I would want to have coffee with would be Obama, just because, there you, go. you know, that he did something that nobody had done before in history. You know, right. I would like to learn more about him, you know, just what makes him tick and what's his thought process. How many people do I get? You get three. You get three people. Oh, oh. let's see. Um, <laughs> You know, there we've was gotten a, some odd, we've gotten some different ones. <laughs> there was a do you, do you remember the climber Lynn Hill? Yes. And, yeah, she. I would love to talk with her. Just That's she was big. kind of a trendsetter in, in climbing, and it would just I think it would be cool to talk to her just to kind of see what what made her tick and what she felt when she was up there on rock. You know, right. uh, I've got a trend of of, of uh, innovators here. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, you know, you that's have, what makes you tick. <laughs> well, it's like when you spend time doing things that are not in your comfort zone, you know, that's mm -hmm. when you really, I think that's when you're really living and when you're perfecting. And I, I think about that and I'm digressing for a minute. I'm not trying to avoid, but I'm just. Nope, you're doing good. You know, when you're, <laughs> like they, you know, they did that study to figure out, okay, how is it that two different people may have practiced the violin, let's say, the same amount of time. One of them gets really good and one of them becomes like a virtuoso. Did they just have some inherent genetic thing that just made them a better violin player? Or was there something in the way that they practiced? And, you know, they found that well, in terms of music anyway, those who you got to put in the hours, there's no getting around that. But those right. who put in the hours in a way that's uncomfortable and for most, the uncomfortable is when you're practicing on your own. It's much easier when you're with a group. Those who did the practice on their own, which was in the uncomfort zone, those are the ones who got that last little bit that the other folks never got. And I thought about that in terms of my training. I never did workouts I felt were comfortable. I w was always training in a way, that, huh. at least in the broad progression of week to week, month to month, I was always trying to get into that uncomfortable place, whether it was something right. with consistency or speed or volume, it was always uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that maybe made me good at what I, one of the reasons why I got so good at, at triathlon, but a third person, I think it could be a, an interesting conversation with Jimi Hendrix, you know, why not? I mean, the guy was, he, <laughs> there you go. he was, he was so young when he died and he did stuff that nobody else has ever done since really. I mean, there's been, there are right. people who are equally good, but nobody that's quite like him. That's a great firehouse table right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're invited. You know what? I, 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 I'd love to. I'll even make the coffee. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. This last question, this is rapid round. So I'm going to give you two things. All you got to do is, is say which one mm -hmm. you choose. All right. Yeah. You ready? All right. Here we go. Paper or plastic? Oh, paper. Soup or salad? Uh, salad. This one's going to be mm -hmm. tough. McDonald's or Taco Bell? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming. I knew it. I knew it. All right. Here we go. Camping or hotel? Oh, oh that's a tough one. <laughs> I'm going to go for the hotel. I do enough stuff. That's, that's, I, let me, let me, I, I need to preface that. I would do the hotel because I do, I actually do a lot of camping and I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time outside, outdoors in nature. And yeah. so I'm not, I'm not deprived of that. And so when I think about going to stay somewhere, I want a nice, nice hotel room where somebody, you, you know, the sheets on the bed, the duvet, everything <laughs> is like way more comfortable than I ever have in my house. And I think, where do they get this stuff? I want this on my bed at home. And by the way, I like the fact that somebody comes and cleans a little, it just tidies it up every day. You know, this is awesome. It's amazing. You know, pamper, pamper yes. yourself. I mean, you have to every yeah. once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fly or drive? Uh, that depends on how far, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're a deep thinker. These, uh, this is the rapid run is not for deep thinkers. <laughs> Well, the, the world isn't black or white. That's the problem. You know? That's true. That's true. That's a, yeah. You know, it's funny because a lot of these questions are from a psychological. Oh, they are. Oh, God. <laughs> my world, yeah, it's, it's my world is almost never black and white. And that 
that makes it very hard for me sometimes because most people, a lot of times people want me to give them a black or white, you know, a, a definitive one or the other sort of answer yeah. or response or communication. It's like, I don't know what's the right thing to say right yet because I haven't digested all sides of this discussion or situation <laughs> possibilities, you know? So, yeah, you know, if I, if it's, if it's to the grocery store, you know, if it's, if it's six hours or less, I'm driving. If it's over six hours, I'm flying pretty much. I love it. This is just an accentuation of going Mark Allen coaching. You better go there because you know that it's going to be precise. <laughs> it's not going to be wake up right. and go bike. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sleep in later, wake up early. Oh, they're both so amazing. I Aren't they? I have, and since COVID, I've been sleeping in late and I keep asking myself, what's yeah. going on with this? However, one of my favorite things is when I first get back from being in Europe and you're on European time zone and you wake up at like 3.30 in the morning and it's quiet and you're wide yes. awake and you get up and, you know, you have a cup of coffee. Next thing you know, it's 4.30 and it's almost sunrise and you're like, I'm the only human who is taking advantage of this. This is so awesome. And, you know, you're like, and know the sun. Yeah. And then, you know, you get the <laughs> wetsuit on and you're the first guy to paddle out in the water. And it's like, this is so awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. These are these. This is the best rapid run I've ever had. I have to say. <laughs> um, I'm gonna start calling okay. it from rapid run. Um, <laughs> all right, next one is run or walk. This should be easy. Hey, I think you're gonna be surprised on this one. Walk. Was that what you were expecting? Oh no, kidding! Yeah, that wasn't what you were. Not and I'll at tell all. you why. Because a couple of weeks ago, I was surfing, and I it was a big day, and I. T took off too late on this one wave. I was actually going to take it in because I'd been, I'd had this incredibly amazing surf session, like one of the best in my life. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'm done. I'm catching one more. I'm going in. Took off late. Board dropped out from underneath me. I came down the face and right as I was coming down the face, the board was coming back up and it, it hit me in the oh. head. Sounded like when a baseball hits a bat solid and that crack. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh no! And I oh. I came up and I put my hand on my on my head. It was on my forehead. Uh, I thought, okay, I know it's going to be bleeding, but I just want to see. And so I put my hand up there, and I for like a second, I took my hand down. And it was completely red. I'm like, oh shit, you know. And I shadowed <laughs> in. Uh, I live two blocks from where I serve, so I walked to my house, my hand on my forehead, and every, I could see everybody's eyes, just like, are you okay, dude? Do you need us to drive you somewhere? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I just live two blocks away, you know. Uh, went to the emergency room. They ended up putting in 14 stitches. It split the scalp open all the way to, all the way to my skull. <sighs> Unfortunately, I didn't crack my skull or get knocked out or anything. But, it, you know, I think I had a pretty little bit of a concussion from it. But anyway, so the last thing I wanted to do was <laughs> anything exerting, but I still wanted to just get out. And so for I, I started walking a little bit and I took my my iPhone because it counts your steps and your distance and all that. And I started, I started thinking, yep. you know, I used to hear these recommendations. You should do 10,000 steps a day to be healthy, you know? And so I'm thinking, I wonder right. how many, how long it would take me to do 10,000 steps. So the first walk that I went on seemed like I was out there forever and I'd only walked about 5,000. I'm like, geez, 10,000 steps. Was a, that's a big <laughs> deal. Right. And so finally I worked my way up to, uh, and when I'm saying walking, I'm I'm saying like walking with intent, you know, not just like strolling, like moving along. Yes. Yeah, like not just the strolling moving along. Type. Like this is 
this is a form of workout. And as I've been doing this, I worked up, I got it up to 10,000 steps and that's about five miles the way my stride is. It's a big deal to walk okay. five miles. And, but, but the it's thing about ways. it that's amazing <laughs> is that because it's a slower motion than running, you can be very acutely aware of so many muscles in your legs, your glutes, your ankles, how, how, how much you're using your feet, articulating your feet, getting, engaging the muscles in the ankle, engaging the glutes, yep. making sure your core is, is solid and stabilized. And I realized just doing those walks was giving me this huge strength that I haven't had before. And it's, and I, and it's helped me to balance some left, right imbalances. Like, you know, one leg doesn't work quite the same as the other type of thing, but you don't really notice it when you're walking, you go, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. They're working a little bit differently. Let me get them to work both the same sets of muscles in each step. And so I think walking, and I never thought I would say this, but I, I think walking, if you do it with, with, with a focus and you do like real walking, like, you know, you do 10,000 steps in a day, whether it's all at once or you split it up into two or three walks. If you do that fairly consistently, I am seeing personally these huge improvements in just this overall integrity of my body. It's the strangest thing. That's crazy. <laughs> I can see that. I've, I've done a lot of walking in my lifetime and it is challenging and you really have to focus because it's not, it's not the quick muscle. It's, it's, a, it's using every single aspect of your body. It's crazy. Yeah. My son's giving me a hard time. He's like, dude, dad, you're, you're, you've become a walker, huh? Okay. Senior citizen. <laughs> hey you don't have a walker you are a walker <laughs> i don't have a walker i am the walker <laughs> well he actually he hiked the pacific crest trails a few summers ago it took him four months a little under four months canada to uh, mexico oh my gosh that's awesome so he he knows about walking yeah oh yeah you have to walk that <laughs> all right this next one i i actually want to hear this answer Partly sunny or partly cloudy? Mm. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I, uh, partly sunny, you know, like, and I would do it in the winter. I'd probably say partly cloudy because in the winter, if it's partly cloudy, that might mean it, it might rain, which is a good thing in the winter. So, but we're in the summer almost. <laughs> uh, see, I like the analytical <laughs> side of that. I like it. All right. This next one's going to be, this is critical to me. Fire or water? Water. <laughs> oh, come on now. All right. All right. This one's going to be a good one. Use a porta potty or continue to drive or run to the next physical bathroom. Uh, well, being a runner, the world is a bathroom. I have found over the years. <laughs> there you go. I got, I, yeah, I knew that one. I'm guessing this one's going to be a, a, like the McDonald's Taco Bell, Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, you can have both. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And then the last one, go big or go home. Go big. Go big all the way. I love it. Mark Allen, this has been a fantastic talk. Thank you so much for coming on. Anybody who wants to find out more, markallencoaching.com, or you can go to www.fitsoul-fitbody.com. Mark, thank you again so much for coming on today. Thanks, Fireman Rob. Chat soon. Definitely. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening and supporting the Forged in the Fires podcast with Fireman Rob. Remember, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast and please share this episode with a friend or family. To find out more about Fireman Rob or reach out about a question, go to www.firemanrob.com. Until next time, live your life for.